2: Welcome to Tales to Terrify.
3: Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Yep, Santoro, Lawrence P., name on the bell. Ah, 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 before you settle in and hold your beaks open for stories, let me draw your wide-eyed attention to this month's cover art. Hmm? Yeah. If you're here via subscription on iTunes and such, please stop by the Tales to Terrify website and have a look. While you're scooting, I'll let your friends know. This month's painting, and yes, it is a painting, paint applied to a paint-ready surface, is by Alan M. Clark. Alan is an old friend. Uh, he was already a hot number in horror and dark fantasy art when I attended my first world horror convention. I think he was the artist's guest of honor at that time. And I was amazed when he stopped by to hear me read my story, Little Girl Down the Way. After the reading, he told me he liked it and said his wife, Melody, would probably be moved by it. Uh, the, the rest of this story is blather, so I'll cut to the chase. Sometime later, when I'd made a fairly lucrative sale to a prosine, I asked the publisher if he would ask Allen to illustrate it. He did, and Allen did. In 2007, when my first solo book, Just North of Nowhere, was set for publication, I again asked for Alan to do the cover art, and he did it. I hope you can go to your shelves and pull that book out, Just North of Nowhere, and have a reminiscential look. If for some strange reason you cannot, you can always go to Amazon.com and find it there. The Kindle edition also features that piece of work by Alan. And by the way, the Kindle edition has an additional three chapters that were cut from... Well, never mind. Let me talk a little about feedback here, artistic feedback. If you're a writer, uh, pal, if you're anyone, I recommend you get to know Alan, at least on the Internet. From time to time, Alan sends out images specifically to inspire other artists and writers. Yes, he's a writer, too. He sends out the work, he says, in order to dilate the imagination, to tweak other people into performing. I've written a few pieces to Alan's work. Alan's painting on this month's cover is called The Cold Beneath the Vinegar Tree. It's something he did many years ago. It wasn't an illustration for any story. Allen says the image has some personal resonance, and when he made it, it was a matter of honing technique. Yvonne Navarro, tonight's main fiction author, wrote a story, The Cold Beneath the Vinegar Tree, based on this picture. It came out in a book called Imagination Fully Dilated, edited by Elizabeth Engstrom and Allen. It's published by Cemetery Dance and is a beautiful book of stories and the illustrations that inspired the stories. I had an opportunity to buy it back years ago and didn't because I thought I couldn't afford it. Now I definitely can't afford it. Now well. Okay. Of Allen, he grew up in Tennessee in, as he says, a house full of bones and old medical books. He has a bachelor of fine arts from the San Francisco art Institute He's had illustrations in books of fiction, nonfiction, in textbooks, young adult fiction, children's books. His awards include the World Fantasy Award and four Chesley Awards. Allen's had five novels published, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines and anthologies. Lazy Fascist Press, an imprint of Eraserhead Press, released a collection of his fiction titled Boneyard Babies in November of 2010. In October 2011, they released his novel, of Thimble and Threat, The Life of a Ripper Victim, and I recommend it heartily. Allen's publishing company, IFD Publishing, has released six traditional books and eight e-books. Allen and Melody live in Oregon. I love Allen's work and own quite a few pieces, which is amazing considering I am not a wealthy fellow, but I like it that much. "'You're sitting here in the nook, surrounded by it, right now. "'Take a look. "'Well, it is pretty dark, "'but you can at least take a look at the cover image. "'So, thanks, Alan, for letting us use "'the cold beneath the vinegar tree for the June cover. "'And stop by Alan's site and get to know him and his work. "'It's highly evocative. "'It's addictive, you might say. "'And it might open up some dusty corners of your imagination.' Okay. Are you in? Are you settled? Welcome to Tales to Terrify, show 21. I know you can find a seat. We've cleaned out the nook recently because company's coming. Someone will be staying here, sleeping here for a bit. Well, that's fine. A lot of people have. I I have. Uh, writer chums in town for a convention who stayed over for a bit to play with Chicago have crashed here. It's surprisingly comfortable for a sofa surrounded by leaning shelves, dripping dust, creepy art, and the skittery silence of night. The bottom of the door lets a little light spill in, but that goes away quickly, and when night shadows forth, it's a very, very dark place with an insulated silence pressing on you from all those books, all that... Okay. Got your beverage of choice, your heart's desire for a munchie? Short Fiction this week is by a new guy. Well, he's new to me, probably new to you. He's very young. I heard him read the story you're going to hear tonight at an author's reading series I sometimes go to. It's on the south side of Chicago, an old, old neighborhood. Okay, look, this could turn into one of my rambles. The reading is in a friend's home. The home, though, well, (laughs) you you just have to see it. It's odd. Angles, levels, catwalks, dark corners, elevations that become little rooms. The area – okay, okay. I said it could turn into a ramble. I won't let it. This reading I attended a couple of weeks ago had maybe 30 people in it at high tide. One of the guys who read is this guy. Alexei Collier. Didn't know him, but the story he read tweaked my fancy. It's not exactly horror. But not exactly not, either. I'll read it. Uh, Then we can talk. Here's Just Around the Corner. It all started with a conversation over drinks at Edgar's on a slow evening. Lyle asked Garrett, What's the most amazing thing you've ever seen? Edgar? Standing behind the bar and half listening in, he got a strange look on his face, like he was staring down a chasm so deep he could see stars at the other end. He got that look sometimes. Garrett just looked nonplussed. Lyle glanced over at me, throwing the question open. The Aurora Borealis, I said, without hesitation. What about you? I'd say the rainforest, Lyle replied, or maybe the Sistine Chapel. "'What, you can't pick one?' Lyle looked smug. "'Who says I have to?' He turned back to Garrett. "'How about you?' Methodical, brow-furrowed. "'Garrett thought before answering, taking a few sips from his beer. "'Hawaii,' he finally answered. "'Just Hawaii,' I asked, nothing specific. "'One particular beach.' I don't remember the name. His serious expression softening in fond remembrance. The water was this incredible turquoise blue. Edgar was still staring down into the whiskey he'd poured himself, the far-off look in his eyes making the glass seem a lot deeper than it was, filled with something far more daunting than a few sips of liquor. So... Edgar, I prompted, always Edgar, never Ed. He corrected anyone who called him Ed in a flat voice that wasn't combative, but certainly brooked no argument. What's the most amazing thing you've ever seen? Edgar raised his head, expression turning merely thoughtful. it's been a long time since anyone asked me that, he said slowly. Lyle rolled his eyes, and even Garrett smirked a little, mostly... In response to Lyle's expression, Edgar liked to joke about his age with wild tales, claiming he'd been on a wagon train on the Oregon Trail or, depending on the day, that he'd had an early career as a boxcar hopping hobo. Garrett and I usually got a kick out of Edgar's stories, and maybe Lyle did too, but he tended to try and poke holes in them. None of us were sure how old Edgar actually was, though he'd clearly been around for a while. Seventy, maybe? Eighty? Whenever anyone asked, he'd just draw down his gray eyebrows and say something like, Old enough. Or, Well, I'm so old I invented dirt. Edgar came around the bar, pulled up a stool. It creaked as he leaned back. Let me tell you a little something. Does it involve a buffalo herd so huge that it took days to pass by? Lyle interjected mock-wearily. Edgar didn't smile. As a matter of fact, yes, though not as you might think. We all stared at him. I'm I'm not fishing for one of your crazy stories, Lyle said. Edgar smiled enigmatically and an almost pained expression. Oh, this one's real, all right. He rubbed at his bearded jaw eyes, squinting into some reminiscence. "'Last time someone asked me that question, "'maybe the only time till now, "'what's the most amazing thing you've ever seen? "'Well... (laughs) "'When I was a much younger man, "'I I was waiting at the train station "'when a funny-looking sort of man "'walked up to me carrying a valise.' "'Wait, wait, you're getting on at the station. Was this before or after your boxcar days?' Lyle quipped sarcastically. I sent him an annoyed glance. "'A a funny-looking man,' I asked, hoping to override the wisecrack. "'Funny-looking, how?' Edgar nodded, acknowledging the question, if not the attempted support. "'Well, from one thing, he was awful thin. But his coat was too tight to spite.' His trousers were hemmed a good three, four inches too high, and I noticed he wasn't wearing any socks. None of his clothes were raggedy. They were actually pretty nice, but it was just odd. And I remember he was wearing a top hat. You don't hardly see anyone wearing a top hat, not even back then. Anyway, he walked up to me, and out of the blue he asked me, "'What's the most amazing thing you ever seen?' I thought maybe he was a clown or a magician, but on the off chance that he were a salesman, I tried to be clever. I answered, a seashell. He said, any seashell? And I said, no, every seashell. And I guess that was the right answer, because his face lit up like, like I have never seen someone's face light up before or since. Not even really happy, like just lit up. Looking back, it was almost frightening. So he says, I'll show you something more amazing than a seashell. And the next thing you know, he clunks down his valise, opens it up, and out comes this funny sort of bent-looking telescope-looking thing. I almost laughed. And I ask him, If it was for looking around corners, well, I'll be damned if his face didn't light up again. Almost as much as the first time, he told me, yes, like a periscope. It's a periscope, but a very special one. This periscope is for looking around the corners in reality. I really did laugh right out loud at that. I figured he was either a jokester or mad, but likely harmless. So when he handed the periscope to me, I looked into it. Aker paused for breath. He reached down and took a steadying sip of his whiskey, eyes locked on the horizon. You weren't lying. Uh, things I saw, other worlds, things I can't even describe. I, I glimpsed a snake so long it stretched across the whole length of time. Whales the size of continents swimming round in an ocean no bigger than a teacup. Houses with one door to all six rooms, or no doors, and only one side for floors, walls, ceilings. Not like a ball, and that's got two sides anyhow, inside and out. No, I mean a house with only one side. And there were other buildings with stairs that looped back on themselves in ways you can't imagine, all painted with murals that would put your Sistine Chapel to shame, paintings that flowed and painted themselves, that that you looked at, not a flat thing on a wall, but all around you and inside you. Oh, and the colors, colors you'd never believe beyond anything in this world. And I saw buffalo. Oh, yes. Except they weren't really buffalo, exactly. And there were two herds. Maybe they were the same herd, one on the ground and one up in the sky on a piece of land that floated above like clouds. It was like a mirror image. Maybe it was a mirror in the sky. I don't know. And they went on for days and days, except that each day lasted a thousand years, with the sun circling round that double horizon like an arctic summer, and all the wild colors swirling. Edgar was silent again, rocking slightly in his seat, his gaze gone more distant and hollow than I'd ever seen. Slowly he came back to himself, And when the man in the hat took his looking-glass back, only a few minutes had passed, even, even though it seemed like forever. When I got my breath back, I asked him, What was that? A stupid question, yeah, but you'd be struck dumb, too. He just said, That was the most amazing thing you've ever seen. And he put the periscope back in his release, picked it up, and went off around the corner of the station. Lyle and Garrett and I all gazed wide-eyed at Edgar. He'd never told us anything about his past that wasn't a tall tale. Now I had to wonder why, to hide a more outlandish truth. (laughs) He'd always grin and nod when he'd spun a story, but he certainly wasn't grinning now. I I wasn't sure whether to believe it, but it was clear that he did. What happened to him, Garrett asked. To who? Edgar asked with a start. The man with the hat. Edgar shook his head grimly. I never saw him again. A part of me is glad for it. Now, there were other things I saw in that device, things I dare not even whisper of. I'm not a brave man, nor a coward neither, but just an ordinary type, and I'll tell you, the only thing that scares me more than what I saw in that periscope is the thought that when I looked in to it... The things I saw were looking back at me. He swallowed, and it was almost a sob. If I ever got my hands in that contraption again, I think I'd probably chuck it in the fire, because if you can see through it, that means the light's getting through. And if light can pass from the other side of that scope, what else might come through? Hmm? trailed off again, his face gone ashen. But why didn't you just follow the man with the hat when he walked off? Lyle questioned. Why didn't you try to get the periscope thing from him? Then you could do whatever you wanted to with it and keep it, destroy it, whatever. I couldn't tell if Lyle was being credulous or incredulous. I wasn't even sure which one I was. Edgar gave him a sharp glance. I couldn't follow him. "'Why not?' Lyle pressed. "'What's missing your train over a periscope that can see into other worlds?' "'Didn't you listen to a word I said, boy?' Edgar shot back in frustration. He leaned forward and hissed through nearly clenched teeth. "'He went around the corner.' Hmm? Nifty little tale, yes. Kind of echoes H.G. Wells' The Crystal Egg, doesn't it? You know that story, don't you? Sure you do. This one's got a purely modern sense of character, though, and a flash fiction sensibility, of course. It's a nice little piece. Alex was born and raised near Los Angeles and now resides across the street from Chicago. You'd probably have to be in Chicago to understand that. His story, The Bohemians, is slated to appear on Idiomancer.com, and he is currently working through the second draft of a novel. He claims he was bitten by a radioactive paperback when he was a sub-tot and began concocting stories as soon as he could talk. As we all know, there is no known cure for that venom. So, thanks for letting us have Just Around the Corner, Alex. Fact It is a fact— Mike Allen and Shailen Hurlbert are back this week, so guts in, make room, make room on the sofa. Here are the likely lads with their June tour of the abattoir.
4: Hello, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome once again to yet another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and these are my thoughts on various things horror-related to be found in the butcher shop of my brain. Last time I promised you I would be doing a review of Cheshire Burke's Let's Play White, an important horror collection, though not marketed as such. That was released last year by Apex Books. I have read the book, but I am not going to be bringing you the review just yet. And the reason is that I once again got together with my buddy, Shalon Hurlbert, horror aficionado, and we discussed The Cabin in the Woods the new movie co-written by Joss Whedon that turns many cinema horror tropes on their gory heads. And Shallon and I spoke about this movie with such enthusiasm that we ended up going on for a very long time. I went to Tony and asked him what we should do about it, and he suggested that I split the column. So, in the Starship Sofa universe, one does not argue with Tony, and therefore that is what I have done. Before I share mine and Shallon's thoughts on Cabin in the Woods, I feel a need to spoil our spoilers. This review is full of spoilers from start to finish, so if you haven't seen the movie and you intend to, you probably need to fast forward straight past this spot to where the fiction feature begins. I'll even do you the favor of assuring you that Shallon and I endorse the movie wholeheartedly. We think you should see it. It's also essential to the enjoyment of this movie not to know anything going in. So again, if you haven't seen it yet and you plan to, you probably should ignore the next half hour of this podcast. However, if you have seen it, you probably want to hear what we have to say. So, without further ado, here's Shallon and I talking cabin in the woods. Hello again, Tales to Terrify listeners. We are back again with the live segment, quote-unquote, of Tour of the Abattoir, and my friend Shallon Hurlbert is with me once again. Say hi, Shallon. Hello. And we're going to talk about something timely for a change. We have both seen The Cabin in the Woods, directed by Drew Goddard, co-written by that gentleman and Joss Whedon, and we're here to talk all about it. I feel that, for the sake of Shallon and I being free to basically say whatever we want, I must give you a warning up front. This review will not be spoiler-free.
1: Yeah, if you want to see it without spoilers, stop now and go to the movies right away.
4: But if you want to know what we think, it's definitely worth seeing. We'll tell you that right up front. Yes, absolutely. Great movie. Shallon, you've done a good job in the past of sort of explaining what a film is about. You want to try with this one?
1: Sure. Cabin in the Woods is sort of what you might call meta-horror. When I first heard it described as that, I thought it was a little pretentious. A lot of movies that describe themselves as meta are anything but. They're more just a parody. With Cabin in the Woods, it really does kind of hit that level of horror about horror it looks at the horror movie from the point of view of the trope of the horror movie rather than coming to it straight with a plot about kids in a cabin and horrible things happen. It's more like why those horrible things happen. It's quite clever in a number of ways. Right. It does a couple things that I've never seen done in a horror movie and that's a pretty rare thing nowadays. Now that's interesting. What would you say it did that you've never seen done? Well, the idea of the two horror stories going on at the same time the people behind all of it working in the background to make all of the monsters and terror really happen to the kids who were in the cabin and what the kids in the cabin are going through. It plays on both of those levels. Like, almost as though you could see the people who are pulling the strings as filmmakers in their own right. Almost like those are the characters that you see through as the director or the writer. The impetus behind it. When you said that, of course, I immediately thought of a movie that I have
4: seen that played with similar turf, although I don't think with anywhere near the same level of wit. And that would be Wes Craven's New Nightmare,
1: which was
4: a follow-up to the Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street series. It was was
1: was... almost a mockumentary about the making of the Freddy Krueger movies, in which Freddy Krueger comes out and does his thing to the people making the movie.
4: He actually menaces Heather Langenkamp,
1: the actress.
4: Right, and it turns out that he is the embodiment of some older evil force that is brought to life as Freddy. That movie was clever in in certain ways. By the end, it basically becomes another Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It just happens to have the added meta level to it.
1: This is definitely a bit different. Right. This is a more direct movie within a movie kind of a thing. Although, and, and although even, it's even more complicated than that. Right, right. Well, if you want to look at it as just a movie within a movie, the people who are pulling the strings... Well, let me step back for a second and just give away a great big spoiler. The movie follows a group of five kids. By kids, I mean college kids. Right. I'm at that age, finally, when they're kids. They're kids to us. (laughs) Yeah, heartbreaking. They end up going on a vacation to a cabin in the woods that happens to be owned by one of the character's uncles, and when they get there, they find a journal the journal has some horrible mention of a family that was into torture and evil, and by reading it, they waken zombies of that family who come right. to kill them off one by one. And yeah, the,
4: the, the journal is actually one of the most genuinely creepy parts of the film. Right, I right.
1: That, the journal was scary. About the time that the journal gets exposed and the monsters start happening, it takes a different turn. You get to see more and more of these characters that are introduced right before the opening credits. These two guys talking about business and their wives and kids and how they're going to change their house and whatever. And then awesome title just screams onto the screen, literally with a scream. Right.
4: In the woods. I read somewhere that Goddard and Whedon wanted to make a point that those jump scares in horror
1: movies it's it's so easy to do that. It's, right. It, yeah, there's very... no there's no art to it. It was very 70s grindhouse. Yes. The way the big block letters with a stilled image right behind it. Ah. you know, I almost expected it to say, like, MCMXVIII underneath right. it. You know, like, the, the way that the older title structures right. had, like, the date and all that right. written right into it. Anyway, it turns out that these guys are part of a team that works in a huge underground facility. Right. In which they run this bizarre, what would you call it? Like It's, a,
4: it's like an underground government operation, right. or, or the sort of thing you might see James Bond trying to infiltrate. Yeah, in yeah exactly. Movies.
1: Their whole point in existing is to sacrifice people so that these great old gods don't wake up and destroy the universe. Right. Or the earth. They leave all these artifacts in the basement of the cabin, When people go down into the basement, which they're sort of lured down. The basement trapdoor actually suddenly opens. Pops up. It's definitely a callback to Evil Dead 2. Right.
4: There's a lot of references to Evil Dead in this movie, for sure. Right.
1: It's played as an identical horror movie plot structure. It's all the points, all the main character tropes, all that. The fascinating idea
4: that is kind of at the center of this is that all these movies that you have seen that follow this sort of formula in which you have a group of teenagers and each
1: is a readily identifiable type. Archetype. It's like the archetypal jock or the archetypal slut, the archetypal nerd, the archetypal stoner. At the end, they even name them off as, what are they? It was like the hero, the 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 athlete, the
4: whore. The Virgin, the, the, the scholar.
1: The scholar and the, the and fool. The fool.
4: Right. If it seems to you, if you've seen a number of movies that have characters like that and they all seem to die a certain way and in a certain order, well, the idea behind Cabin in the Woods is that in order to appease these hidden old gods, the people brought as sacrifices must fill these different roles and they must die in a certain order.
1: And in specified ways.
3: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, except for the fact that they say that they can die pretty much in any order so long as it happens the whore, by one. The, the whore always has to die first. Right. The uh, whore dies first and then after that and the virgin The virgin has to either survive but completely changed by it or She, she has to suffer is yeah. what they say. She, right. Exactly. Well, she, she can live or die but she must suffer. Right. (laughs) These guys, it follows them and then watching them through a screen, and it looks just like guys watching a movie in a tech-filled basement. These archaic levers that they pull as each one dies, and then you get a glimpse of blood running into the little forms that are like carved bas-reliefs of each of the the different figures. They're like blood runnels in an altar. Right, right, but they're vertical. Yes.
4: I don't see this precisely as a flaw, but this was my take on the movie, that the story that underlies their neat tricks, which is that this ritual is being carried out to appease the old ones, is in itself, if you are a horror reader or watcher, a very familiar trope. Right, And so it's interesting that they didn't really, I think, escape the typical horror plot line so much as they took a couple of them and fused them together in a way that hasn't really
1: been done before. I don't think it was necessarily like a study of the horror movie as a horror movie. Or what the, the genre encompasses. I think it was more of a study of basic teen slasher horror movie. Right. Like Scream, which itself was sort of a meta-horror movie.
4: Right. And In Scream, everybody sort of knows how slasher films work, and
1: yet it doesn't right. actually even, save them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. There's even a character who goes... I'm sure most of you have seen it, but there's a character who basically talks his way through figuring out who dies first and how these horror movies work. I think it was more like a commentary on that rather than on horror as a genre. Right. And so stepping out of that, I think that it was okay that it still had a horror background. I think
4: it kind of shows that in the end, given the choice between really making it a true meta-commentary and and, and just telling kind of a fun, fast-paced
1: story with some scary moments, they actually chose the latter. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And i got to say, it was a really fun movie to watch. What I realized I was diverging from was I was going back into the plot where they get pulled down into the basement, and the basement is just filled with all these weird artifacts so like a puzzle ball and right. and the, echoes of
4: hellraiser definitely right and, and then the, and the like the a talk that's
1: that's got some weird noise coming out of it. There's, yeah, there's the, all... The,
4: having seen it twice, there's there's also a film reel. We never, right. We never
1: quite learn what that's going to lead to. Right, right. I can only assume something awful. The other funny part that I really loved is that all the people who work in there, not just the two main corporate drones who are running this whole thing, but a whole group of guys who are in this corporation come downstairs as the uh, characters are in the basement. Facility, oh, yes, yes. And they have a bedding pool on what horrible thing they're going to awake and activate.
4: Right. Just in case we haven't elaborated, the idea is <laughs> that by playing with one of these objects, they're going to... They choose their own doom. Right. They're going to activate some horror, and it isn't determined until they do it which one will be the thing that comes after. Right.
1: They had some awesome stuff, in they're like, they had the cannibalistic sugar plum fairy. Yes. And the merman. The merman. And the merman comes back in a really funny way at the end. This There's a character who just wishes that it would finally be the merman, that every time they've done it in the past, it just hasn't been the merman yet he really wants the merman. And uh, <laughs> he gets at the end, wish. he gets his
4: wish. <laughs> Let's go ahead and jump ahead a little bit here. Because okay. obviously you can guess from what we've said that at some point the movie reveals to us that, in fact, there were all these options as to what horror could have come after our main characters. It wasn't just the redneck zombie torture family. As one expects must happen for this to really be a story, some of the characters who've been brought in as sacrifice manage
1: to buck the system and figure out what is going on what's really funny (laughs) to me is it's the fool character he's a stoner and he smokes weed throughout the whole movie right each one of them has been dosed or prepped in some way without them knowing it as they came in like the athlete guy his drink was dope to increase his aggression so he started acting like a jock even though at the beginning of the movie they reveal him to be quite an intelligent Sociology God. major. Yeah, he's a sociology said. guy, and he's exposed to be very, very bright.
4: And the, quote, slut, unquote, at the beginning, we learn, was pre-med. But
1: her hair dye has been Yeah, she dyed with. her hair blonde, and her hair dye was leaching into her skin, causing her inhibitions to drop. And she was actually very devoted to the athlete character. So she wasn't a whore so much as she was just a woman with some sexual experience.
4: Well, there's a nice moment when the quote fool Marty says we're not, yeah, we're not who we are, or something like yeah, that, yeah, something
1: like that, and he's like, since when did whatever the athlete's name, when did he become such an alpha male jerk and right ha- she's so inhib- uninhibited, why is she acting in this way and And so he starts to figure it out, and at some point they all run into their separate rooms to hide from the zombies who are coming up, and he, during the quiet period. He knocks over a lamp, and in the smashed lamp, he sees a little camera that they're watching him through. Yes, And he starts to figure it out, and they're like, well, we laced his weed with enough drugs. That there's no way you should be able to see this stuff. But it turns out that he snuck... An, an extra bag in and so the weed that he'd been smoking actually cleared his mind and, <laughs> that's, uh, a, that's a humorous touch there yeah and he ends up being a survivor you see him dragged off into the woods and it's assumed he's dead they pull the lever the blood goes down and all that stuff yeah, there there
4: is a question to me. That's maybe one of the plot holes in the movie because there's a question of whose blood is going in there. If that's not his, yeah, but, you, know, you know, you know, the thing about
1: it is this movie, like most movies, I don't, uh, you know, glosses over right. certain things. But the idea that I got is is as I watch it in this whole like corporate seeming horror factory, I kind of got the idea that it's not necessarily the specific person's blood that matters. It's just blood matters and the sacrifices have to die. That could be correct. Yeah. The movie itself doesn't clarify no, that no, one no. way or the That's other. That's just my particular right. interpretation when I watched it. What because this? even after the first death, it's like there's no way they could have collected the blood because they behead this woman in the woods away from anything, right. just on a moss bed. And, and so how could they collect enough blood to dry? So it's got to be from another source. But now, there's a lot of stuff like that. Well,
4: what this leads up to is... Perhaps the single most wonderful part of this movie is the reveal where the fool and the virgin (laughs) escape down into the laboratory and discover all the other monsters that are being kept in these cubes in this... Bizarre sort of elevator
1: system. They, They find a hatch, and they escape down it, and they figure out that the zombies were coming up from that. And then they climb down into what looks like an elevator. Right. And then the elevator starts to go down, and it's just one of hundreds of glass cubes... That are all in a big, like, rail system. Right. Each containing a unique monster. Right. And there's, like, a Hellraiser kind yeah, of looking yeah, dude the, the, with the, a the, saw blade in his head. The
4: Pinhead Tribute
1: guy, I think, remains my favorite. Yeah, he was awesome. And then you see what the Sugar Plum Fairy was, is a little girl ballerina whose face is just a big mouth full of teeth. Right. And I think maybe she might get activated by that music box. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the music box has a little ballerina. There's just all sorts of awesome monsters in it, little cannibals creatures and oh, yeah. giant tentacles. The, the, the
4: twins from The Shining
1: appear. The, yeah, t- the yeah. tree
4: from the first Evil Dead movie appears at yeah. one point.
1: Definitely that part is like sort of a who's who of all the famous horror movies that everybody's loves, cult classics, even more mainstream stuff like The Shining. And then
4: this gets to a point that
1: you could either take it as a plot hole or you
4: could take it as the creators of this movie in their way being even more meta. Because, of course, having shown us all these monsters, there is now... This expectation created for the audience that we're going to get to see all these monsters do their thing, and we do kind of. And guess what? There just happens to be a button that unleashes them all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How convenient! Right.
1: <laughs> I can't remember. Did they break out and push the button? Or... It's the, the the fool and the virgin are the ones right. who, who, who push the who push the button and unleash all these horrors on the unsuspecting yeah. horror factory. Yeah, people. the scientists.
4: And and all the armed security guards who appear from nowhere long enough to be eaten. They just get (laughs)
1: shredded. (laughs) From there on in, for about the next 20 minutes, it's just a bloodbath as the two survivors go running through this place as... The monsters they unleash just kill everybody who's after them. There's
4: even a unicorn that murders someone. Right, Isn't right. right.
1: <laughs> and I don't know if, if it's from Peter Freund, who wrote the Rampant and Ascendant books about meat-eating evil unicorns.
4: Meta-editor Mike Allen here barging in with a little note that Shallon is referring to young adult author Diana Peterfront in this analogy he makes.
1: Okay. It might have been a little inside joke because it, it seems like she's the kind of author who might be on Joss Whedon's radar. Um, it's as good as an explanation right. of Annie. I love that part, I gotta say. That's just awesome. <laughs> they finally escape down into what looks like the sacrificial chamber. And you finally see the bar release with the blood filling the runnels. They end up being confronted by Sigourney Weaver. Yes, I was saying. And cue Sigourney Weaver cameo. I think they chose a good one, but they could have gone with Jamie Lee Curtis. Right, right. You know, no, I think that... A writer friend of mine,
4: Ferret Steinmetz, said that Jamie Lee Curtis would probably have been the more appropriate
1: cameo. Right.
4: But it's still funny to see Sigourney Weaver at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think the point of the casting there was to find somebody who is a very visible figure who is well known as a horror actor. And Sigourney Weaver's biggest, most famous role, of course, is alien. Right. And, oh my gosh, I was so hoping that one of the creatures they released would be be a a xenomorph kind of alien creature. Because they did skirt copyright, I think, by changing each of them a little bit. Like, instead of Pinhead he had saw blades in his head. Instead it's it's actually a werewolf that jumps down. Right. And she explains the whole thing to him in the classic supervillain monologue diatribe.
4: Very much the same thing she does at the end of the movie Paul, if you
1: happen to see that film. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That might be another reason why she was picked up for this. Because she's done a lot of meta kind of movies. And, uh, God, I hate the fact that I'm saying meta so much. I don't know why, but that term really bothers meta, me. Meta, 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 meta. The <laughs> because there's so much stuff that's meta for the...
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: Make of being meta, which I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, that seems pretentious and artificial, but I think they really pulled it off with this. Right. And after she explains this whole, you guys have to die or the world will be destroyed by these gods who really, they just like seeing this stuff. And if they see it every so often, they'll leave us alone. So we have this whole thing system in place and by surviving you're dooming the rest of the world werewolf attacks they get into this scuffle where well actually it's the virgin is the one who ends up getting attacked by, by the, the werewolf. werewolf and and, and the, she what, has
4: the gun on the fool she right? has the gun on the fool it's implied that sigurney has sold her on
1: going ahead and killing, killing him the fool
4: and saving the world and saving the world
1: right uh werewolf Comes out of nowhere, attacks her, drags her off.
4: She drops the gun, and Sigourney and the Fool are wrestling. And it's actually the little girl zombie who
1: comes down. Right, right. The very and, and, last of the redneck torture zombie yeah, films. Yeah. And, 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 and the actress who played that is a, is a horror staple, too. She was a little girl in Silent Hill. Oh. She played Bree Tanner in the Twilight series. Why I know that, don't ask. It's part of my whole teen librarian thing. I have to know some pretty vapid stuff. That was a good casting choice, too, because even under the zombie makeup, I was able to see her and say, oh, she's been in this and that.
4: Oh, yeah. You know, I did not make that connection. She was the star of Tideland. Which is a
1: fantastic movie. A very twisted movie.
4: So there's another horror
1: cameo right, right. for you. So I kept, by the time it got to this point in the movie, I was starting to look for either cameos or other casting choices image choices, creature choices, things like that, so that I could start listing them off in my head, because that's part of the fun of this movie. Sure. Is seeing it taking all those wonderful, real classic cult classic movies and showing them to you again as little snippets. And it's really fun. Right. But anyway, back to the story. The, the little zombie girl, girl comes down
4: and, and she... She axes Sigourney Weaver. She, she's the one who actually kills... Little Jodel Ferdinand is actually the one who kills Sigourney Weaver. And they
1: fall off the They, they fall platform. down into the
4: abyss with the old gods. Right. And then you have the two characters left.
1: They and, basically thank each other. For not killing each other, and then have a discussion about how, if this well, is the sort of lengths that humanity is going to, to save themselves, then maybe humanity doesn't deserve Exactly, advance. exactly. It's the element
4: that nobody ever seems to conclude in H.P. Lovecraft, but you have to wonder if it isn't at the back of someone's mind, which is, well, why is the human race all that great? Yeah, right. why
1: why not let somebody else have it? <laughs> right. And then of course they basically say goodbye to each other and one of them says, I wish I could survive to see what happened. Giant evil gods. Right. Squish. Of course those of us Yes. <laughs> and those of us who are great HP Lovecraft fans were totally expecting horrible tentacles. But what happens is a huge human grey hand reaches up through the cabin and smashes down on the camera. And that ends the film. There are people who've expressed disappointment about that, and I've also
4: read suggestions that, well, maybe it's a human hand, because really this movie is all about the audience watching it and what the audience is. Exactly, exactly. I mean,
1: the old gods are alluded to and pretty much straight out described as the viewers. The theater audience, Right. The old gods are the ones who want to see this stuff. They want to see these characters suffer and die, and really... To be honest, that's what you go to a horror movie for. Because if they right. they solve the mystery before anybody dies, it's not a, it's horror, movie. Not a horror movie. It's Scooby Doo, you know. And nobody wants it's a different kind of horror. You're right. Right. It's not satisfying to the average watcher of, say, the Jason films or the Freddy film, what you're going to see there is the visceral kill. And that's the horror that drives a lot of people to go see these movies. And I think that even myself, when I started to watch horror, I just wanted to be scared. The first horror movie I ever really watched was Alien, when I was about 12 years old. Nightmares for years. Loved it. Watch it over and over again. Next movie that I watched that was really scary, The Shining. Same thing. If there hadn't been awful death and real threat to the characters, it wouldn't have provided the kind of entertainment that most horror lovers and watchers want. They want something ugly. Because if it's not ugly, it's not scary. And if it's not scary, you might as well go watch a comedy. I think you're absolutely right, but I think
4: that... This movie sort of made a point that goes beyond that, that modern movies have adopted this very rigid formula exactly. that, that, that specifically
1: involves the extended torture of teenagers, women... Right, the whole women, torture porn thing, yes. where and, it, it's become more like... There's no psychological scare in many films anymore. Most of them have become, how much damage can we physically do to these people to horrify and gross out the audience. I mean, a good example is uh, The Human Centipede. You know? <laughs> I totally get where the director and the writer are coming from. It's supposed to be almost a spoof, but still staying within the the right. guidelines of horror. But, you, you know, well, beyond the, that, the, if you look at a movie like Hostel, I mean, there isn't even one complete story in there. There's two stories. There's a story about a douchebag and his friend... Going around on a like right. a sex vacation. And then the rest of the movie is just some guy torturing the crap out of them. It's just kind of hard and awful to watch. There is art to be found in even the human centipede. Even to
4: well, some absolutely. degree
1: in hostile. But it's obvious with I those mean, movies the, the exploitation is the point. Absolutely. Yes. And it sort of harkens back to grindhouse horror. But even those had a little, I don't want to say class. I mean, you could say the same
4: thing of, say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. In fact, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre follows the formula that's explicated in Cabin in the Woods very
1: closely. it's the same thing as, as cliches. The reason that it works is because it works. If it wasn't something that rang true, the cliche wouldn't continue to be used. The formula is a good formula. It really is. It's only after years and years and years of the formula being used over and over and over again that it becomes dried up. You dry up the well. Right. There's only so many times that you can see the same five archetypes go into the same stupid... Situation and make the same stupid choices and die the same stupid way. Right.
4: There's some wonderful explanations introduced in the movie for why everybody always splits up (laughs) and and why people always wander off by themselves or drop their weapons when, when there's when there's clear danger established. Those are some of the nicer little twists. There's one particularly disturbing one that occurs. It's when the, quote, virgin, unquote, is finally cornered by the giant zombie. And he starts really doing horrible things to her. And then we cut to the inside of the lab where everybody's
1: holding a party. Right. <laughs> because they it, oh, they killed everybody and they're going to survive.
4: Right. I think it really is kind of meant to be a kind of tweak on the nose of the
1: audience. You know, hey, we're torturing the girl now. Are you happy? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. She takes so much punishment in that scene that it's... It, because it, it, the acting is very good in this movie, it really is hard to watch
4: these characters meet their fates even though you know what's supposed to happen. Exactly.
1: Oh, my gosh. Actually, Actually, my favorite death is The Athlete. Yes.
4: Well, you probably know by now, in case you don't. The Athlete is played by Chris Hemsworth. Thor. Who played Thor in the movie that Josh Whedon directed. As
1: soon as the characters come on screen, I turned to Mike and I said, Hey, they'll be safe. They've got Thor with them. Yeah, that didn't work. No. <laughs> but they're trying to escape and their car breaks down and he decides to jump this ravine and there's a force field blocking both sides. Right. So he just splatters into
4: that and, and this is after delivering all the cliche dialogue that the characters do in the right, situation. Right.
1: I'll give it my all.
4: I always do. He gives yeah. it his all right into the force shield. Right,
1: right. <laughs> just stay safe. I'll be back to bring help and smash. Right. That's sort of the moment when the surviving characters figure out that there's something up.
0: Up. Anyway,
4: yes. We, we have gone yeah. on the longest we have ever gone, but we know people want to hear about this movie. Exactly. We're, we're both recommending it enthusiastically. Oh, three thumbs up. <laughs> Make that six. Yes. Six, six. <laughs> Go see the movie. It's wonderful. And until next time,
2: stay scared.
3: Ah, yes, writing, deadlines. I know what those are. Well, I used to know. Ah, well. Shalen, by the way, is a librarian for youth literature in Roanoke, Virginia. Of him, Mike Allen says, he knows more about horror in general, and Lovecraft in particular, than just about anyone I've ever met. So, thanks again, Mike and Shalen. Looking forward to... Next month's walk through the abattoir. Okay, you got your wellies off now. So, you writers, have you taken up the mic and recorded ten minutes of your novel-to-be, or book that is, and sent it to us? Have you narrators-in-waiting signed up for the Starship Sofa's Narrators Workshop coming up this June 10? Here is Kate Baker to give you a polite little nudge.
0: Hello there. Let me tell you a story about a narrator's workshop happening soon. This is Kate Baker, Hugo winning Clark's world magazine podcast director. I've narrated for a ton of different authors. Tony has asked me to share with you a few of my tips and techniques. I hope you can join this awesome lineup on June 10th, 2012 where I'll be sharing the mic with Peter Seton, Clark, Mike Boris, and Nathan Lowell. So please, don't hesitate. Buy your tickets now and listen to some of the best in the business. And by best, I mean on those other guys. <laughs> I hope to see you there.
3: So, go. Click on the registration widget, or wookie or what you call it, and do the workshop. Then you start sending, okay? You send a short audition piece to us at tales to terrify at gmail.com to let us know what sort of voice, accent, character, etc. you've got. And authors, send us ten terrifying minutes from the book or work you'd like to promote, same email, tales to terrify at gmail.com, and we'll post it at the end of the show. Yes? Fame and fortune will follow. It's all just that. Simple. Our main fiction of the evening tonight is a special pleasure for me. Tonight, Dave Robison is going to read the story that launched the professional career of one of my favorite writers, uh, Yvonne Navarro. Vaughn is a former Chicagoan who was taken away from us by her now husband, Weston Oaks, and the couple now live somewhere in the desert of one of those big square states between Chicago and the Pacific Ocean. Okay, it's Arizona. She's published over 20 books, Yvonne has. Of those 20, the titles uh, After Age, Dead Rush, Final Impact, Red Shadows, Dead Times, That's Not My Name, and Mirror Me were solo novels, fiction created solely by her. Her most recent works, Highborn and Concrete Savior, are part of the Dark Redemption series. And she wins or gets nominated for awards. Lots of them. In 1993, After Age was a finalist for the Horror Writers Association's Bram Stoker Award for First Novel. Dead Rush was a finalist for the Stoker Award in the novel category. Her Buffyverse novel, The Willow's File, Volume 2, won the 2002 Stoker for Works for Young Readers. Final Impact won the 1997 Chicago Women in Publishing Award for Excellence in Adult Fiction— and the Rocky Mountain News Unreal Worlds Award for Best Horror Paperback of 1997. It just goes on and on. So tonight, we're going to have the story that started it all. This was Vaughn's first professional sale, and it appeared in Catherine Patasik's Women of Darkness 2.
2: I know what to do by Yvonne Navarro. We moved into the apartment in March. I hadn't liked the place since the first time we saw it, but I didn't tell Maggie until after it was too late to do anything. I don't know why. Maybe I wanted to have something to hold over her head. It seemed like she'd controlled everything since we got married. The money, where we lived, what we ate, everything. If I'd said how much I hated the place and I think I did drop a couple of obvious hints. She would have sat across from me at the kitchen table with that let's talk about this in a reasonable manner look on her face and explained how we were saving money, 25 bucks a month, big fucking deal. The landlord at the old place was going to sell the building and then the rent would go up, on and on until I ended up agreeing with her anyway. By keeping my mouth shut, I had future artillery if I wanted it. Not that I don't love her. I do. I wouldn't have married her otherwise, not after the shit I went through with my first wife. In fact, if you wanted to use Maggie's psycho babble, the ex probably had a lot to do with my attraction to Maggie. Security, a sense of organization, her always knowing what to do. Sounds like a bunch of crap for a man to be saying, doesn't it? Like the old expression goes, you had to be there. Spend a few years with my ex and you'll understand. The place was all right, I suppose. It was hard to compete with my old apartment and its golden wood floors and wall full of unblocked east windows. The new one was standard inner-city Chicago, dark and somewhat smaller, with a building on the east and an alley on the west. It was a first floor, too, and it made me nervous to think how easy it would be for some punk to break in, whether or not we were home. We moved in. The dog acted weird right from the start. Get out of there! At 5.45 in the morning, I wasn't expecting any loud noises, and I nearly overturned my coffee when Maggie yelled. The small hallway that was the connecting point of most of the rooms was mostly in shadows, but I could still make out Chancy's gangly black shape with her head poked into the bathroom. What the hell is she doing? I asked. The dog made the mistake of stepping into the bathroom, and Maggie was down the hall instantly to plant a solid whack on Chancy's rump. Out! The animal backpedaled and ran for the living room, nails slipping on the linoleum. For a second, I thought she was going to trip and fall flat, and I groaned inside. The dog was so clumsy, it was embarrassing. Maggie glanced into the bathroom and looked around, muttering to herself about dog hairs. It was still early, so I decided to keep my opinion about white throw rugs to myself. "'What was she looking at?' I asked, reaching down to tie my boots." "'I don't know,' she said, flipping on the light. "'There's nothing in here. "'Wait! "'Oh, Jesus!' "'She sounded disgusted. "'Now what?' "'I looked at the boots doubtfully. "'There was some serious wear around the backs. "'I figured by the end of the week I'd need a new pair "'and wondered if we had the money. "'Out of that same paycheck would have to come "'Dolly's alimony payment. "'With a name like that, you'd think I would have known better.' I think we've got cockroaches. I got up and went to the bathroom door. Where? Did you see one? The room looked clean to me. Too clean. That's the effect when you use too much white, like in a hospital. Personally, I always went for blue. I think so. I mean, I saw something. It it ran under the bathtub. We had one of those old-fashioned clawfoot tubs, the kind with four or five inches of space under it. I got down on my knees and peered underneath, but it was too dark to see anything. That was another thing that went against the place. One stupid fluorescent light in the bathroom. I hated fluorescent lights, and my list of grievances was growing longer. There was something way in the back, but I wasn't sure. Maybe just a hole in the plaster around the baseboard. The building wasn't exactly in great shape. I stuck an arm under the tub and groped around for a few seconds, knowing that no cockroach on this earth is going to let me catch it. I've lived in worse places, and roaches were old territory for me. Something bit me on the forefinger. I mean, really bit me. Fire spread up my finger and through the palm, even before I could yank my arm out from beneath the tub. "'Son of a bitch!' I screamed, jerking up from the floor and grabbing for the faucet. Garbled thoughts of scorpions under the tub ran through my head. What happened? John, are you okay? Maggie thought she was frantic. She should have had the feeling of burning napalm going through her hand like I did. While the icy water cooled the stinging, the water pressure made it throb nastily. Being a stonemason has gotten me a few fingertips sandwiched between slabs of granite, but man, it never hurt this bad. Air hissed in and out from between my teeth, and I'll give Maggie one thing. She knows when to keep her mouth shut. When I didn't answer, she just stood there and waited, working her hands nervously. After a few minutes, the water seemed to do the trick, and I turned it off so we could examine my finger. The only thing we found were two tiny swollen places, one on each side just under the edge of the nail. Maybe that's why it hurt so much. Where minute chunks of my skin were gone. But they weren't even bleeding, or if they had, the water had washed it away. While I still didn't know what had done it, I was relieved. Visions of mice and rats swirled in my brain. I didn't know if mice carried rabies or not, but with no teeth marks on my hand, I wouldn't have to worry about it. "'Do cockroaches bite?' Maggie asked doubtfully, as she dabbed polysporin on the wound and wrapped it with a Band-Aid. "'I've never had one bite me before,' I answered. "'Though I have read that in places where there are major infestations, like in housing projects, "'they'll eat the eyelashes off of sleeping babies.' She gaped at me, and I realized I'd made a mistake. Her face twisted. That's revolting! What can I say? It was too late, anyway. As I left for work, she was hauling bucket and rags and pine cleaner out of the pantry. I figured in the hour before she'd have to get ready for work, she'd have our white bathroom smelling like a hospital, too. The next morning, I saw it. Maggie was in the kitchen packing my lunch and thankfully didn't see the dog crouching half inside the bathroom door, or Chancey would have probably gotten a couple of whacks for doing it two days in a row. I couldn't stand to see that. Chancey may be big, she's half lab and half Great Dane, but she's nothing but a silly puppy in a ten-year-old body, and normally well-behaved. She doesn't bark, bite, or crap in the house. It seemed a shame for her to get cracked just because the bathroom had bugs and she was curious though I could understand why. The damn thing was huge, maybe as long as my thumb, a couple of inches at least. No exaggeration. It went scuttling backwards under the tub when I reached around and flipped the light switch, but I could have sworn that it was only about a half a foot away from the dog, like it wasn't afraid of her at all. Well, Mama didn't raise an idiot, and I'd be damned if I was going to stick my hand back under the tub, to be honest. The memory of that pain was enough to make me hesitate about kneeling down and looking. But in the end, I did, after glancing out of the door and making sure Maggie was still messing with my lunchbox. It would really make her crazy to think there was a roach crawling around the bathroom she'd practically sterilized yesterday. I thought I saw it, way back in the corner, the same spot as yesterday, when I'd stupidly tried to grab it. I got back up and strolled into the kitchen without saying anything first making sure the chancy was in the other room to stay. I think I'll pick up some bug spray on the way home, I said. Maggie whirled. I could see her fingers clench around the peach that was slotted as today's dessert and resigned myself to bruised fruit. Did you see another one? Where? In the bathroom again? No, I lied. Just a precaution. We never did catch that one yesterday, unless you... She shook her head. That goes to show you, it'll probably come back, maybe, with a family. She scrunched up her shoulders and shivered. We'll start spraying every day at first, then once a week. That'll kill them off and keep them gone. Friday morning, I sat at the kitchen table. Sometimes it seems we spend our lives at the kitchen table, and made out Dolly's check. Maggie paid the other bills that were due and pushed a few aside that she figured could hold out another week— I could feel a breeze in a few places in my boots, but new ones would still have to wait. The alimony was the only bill I had to take care of personally, and after four years, writing that check still hurt to the heart. While Maggie didn't complain, which wouldn't have made any difference, she refused to write the check out, and made me mail it myself. Dolly was living on public aid down in Missouri with her two sons from a previous marriage— a couple of preteen Nazis who liked things like dissecting live frogs and pulling legs off grasshoppers, one fifty a month isn't much until you supplemented with twenty five per cent of my weekly take-home pay and double child support from some other guy. It's hard going to work when you know that ten hours a week is for some bitch in a backwoods, Missouri town where eighty bucks will rent you a farmhouse for a month. And here I was, a working Joe, who couldn't afford a new pair of boots. It's a good thing I'd just finished my signature when the dog howled, or I might have dug right through the paper. The ink pen went flying out of my fingers as I jumped up, and both Maggie and I ran for the hallway. My attention had been centered on the check and my ex, and I hadn't even seen Chancey creep all the way into the bathroom. Now she came rolling out as if something had knocked her off her feet, paws flailing at her nose. She slipped on the linoleum and went down, yowls getting louder as Maggie grabbed for her collar and I grabbed for anything. Maggie finally threw herself across the dog and pinned her to the floor. Chancey's howling filled the apartment as she struggled wildly and whipped her head back and forth. I already had an idea about what had happened. "'What's the matter with her, John?' Maggie cried. "'Hold her!' I shouted, lunging for her head. I guessed right away that one of those cockroach things had bit her on the face. What I couldn't figure out was how we were going to calm the old girl down before she had a heart attack. I also hadn't counted on the damn thing still hanging onto Chancey's nose. The three of us scrambled around on the floor for about thirty seconds or so. I admit, I didn't know what to do. I sure as shit didn't want to grab that thing with my hand, but I had to do something— Chancy's head was jerking in every direction, and I could see flashes of the insect's dangling black body. It showed no signs of letting go. Her howling was getting worse. I was afraid it was chewing on her. "'John!' Maggie sounded on the verge of hysteria. "'Hang on! I'll be right back!' I ran back into the kitchen, sliding on the floor and cracking my knee as I came around the cabinet, and yanked out a drawer. Behind me, Maggie's cries of, "'Stay!' "'We're getting hoarse, and Chansey's yelps were coming faster. "'John, I can't hold her!' "'Both hands plunged into the midst of the aluminum gadgets and searched frantically. "'There, a pair of tongs with serrated edges. "'I barreled into the hallway, pointing the thing like a gun, "'as if just the sight would drive the creature away, but no such luck. "'She's getting loose!' "'Chansey had almost squirmed out from under Maggie, "'and I could see places where the dog's nails had raked welts into my wife's skin.' I sprawled on top of the dog's back end and reached around Maggie, who was trying unsuccessfully to hold Chansey's thrashing legs. Any second now, I expected my lovable mutt to chomp into one of us. Pain has a way of changing personality. I outweigh Maggie by a good 50 pounds, but that dog was still bucking under me like some kind of wild horse. She opened her mouth and showed those old yellow teeth, and I thought, here it comes. But before it could, I shoved my left fist into her throat and forced her head as far back as it would go against Maggie's arm. I ignored Maggie's shocked protest and reached over with the other hand and clamped onto the shell of that thing with the tongs, dug in hard, and pulled. It came off fast, but the amount of resistance against my arm muscles made my stomach twist in sick sympathy. The noise Chancy made sounded more like a screaming baby than a dog, and Maggie screamed right along with her. It wasn't until I pulled my fist out from the dog's mouth and stood up with that thing on the end of those tongs that I realized I'd hollered, too. Chancy scrunched herself into a corner and pawed at her nose, with Maggie crouched beside her, trying to talk soothingly. I saw spots of blood dripping down the tongs, and half fell into the bathroom, intending to flush that thing right down the toilet— as I reached for the lid, my right hand bumped against the sink and the tongs opened a fraction too much. The roach fell to the floor and made for the bathtub. Motherfucker! I bellowed. My work boot came down with a hundred and eighty pounds of crazed construction worker in it and I danced on that little son of a bitch for a full ten seconds. Then I slumped against the sink and tried to catch my breath. The tongs had gone sailing into that unfriendly area under the tub. Maggie was still talking softly to Chansey. I don't even think she heard me swear over the dog's whines. She might play a stern master, but the charade didn't fool me. That dog's grizzled face and big brown eyes made her melt inside. I rinsed my face and hands at the sink to get the sweat and dog smell off, then dried myself, grabbed a hunk of toilet paper, and squatted down. It was an ugly thing, even bigger than I remembered, with sharp mandibles sticking out from each side of its head. Maybe it wasn't a cockroach at all, but some kind of beetle. No wonder the bug spray hadn't worked. This sucker looked tough. I leaned closer and almost gagged. It was some kind of translucent egg sac tucked under its rear end. Tiny black things pulsed inside. Gross, I thought. Let the sewers handle it. I knew I'd have to do it quick or I'd lose my nerve. The thought of those babies twitching around with only a few layers of paper between them and my fingers made my balls shrink up. But I couldn't leave it on the floor and go after the dustpan. If Maggie saw that egg sack, she'd go nuts. I reached for it. It ran. Towards me! "'Memories rocketed through my mind, a handful of fire, "'chancy squirming on the floor in agony, "'the grainy feel of tearing dog flesh as the tongs did their work. "'Yah! "'My legs went out from under me, and my rump hit the floor hard, "'boots kicking furiously. "'The left one, thank God, connected and knocked it back a foot or so. "'The beetle thing darted under the tub. "'What are you doing in there?' "'The sounds from the hall had changed.' Chancy's protests had softened to whimpers. I heard Maggie's slippers make small slapping sounds, and I clambered to my feet and hit the toilet handle before she came around the door. Did you kill it? Yeah, I said, trying to squelch the shakes that were working through my hands. I flushed it down the toilet. That's good, she said almost cheerfully and turned away. I hope we don't get any more of those nasty things. Jesus, I thought, what am I going to do? The dog was okay, though she stopped sticking her face into the bathroom. Her nose was a little shredded, but like my finger, there was no permanent damage. The way she looked at me after we finished dabbing at her schnoz with peroxide, it was like a kinship. We both knew what it felt like to have something try and eat you, and it had nothing to do with sex either. Saturday and Sunday are Maggie's days to sleep late and she gets up with me at five during the week. I'm an early riser, even on the weekends, generally dozing on and off for a while, then getting up and leaving Maggie to rest for a few more hours. That's the time I do a few things around the house. Whatever can be done without much noise. Take care of business, so to speak. If there's nothing that needs to be done, I'll just watch television, cartoons, or maybe an old movie on cable. Pre-dawn Sunday, I had business to take care of. I stood outside the bathroom door in near darkness, staring into that little room with no better light than what came from a feeble nightlight in the kitchen. But it was enough. My hands held sophisticated hunting tools, a piece of paper, and a glass jar with a lid. If I couldn't kill it, then I'd catch it, and trust my gut feeling that there was only one of those creatures, a mutant. A single, indestructible beetle thing in this whole fucking world, and it had to be in my house. Life's a real bitch sometimes. What I did know for a fact was that there wouldn't be just one for long, and I had to catch that thing before it gave birth. I tried the same gig Saturday and gotten nowhere, though I hadn't given up until I'd heard Maggie moving around in the bedroom. I figured what I needed was live bait. Taking my house shoe off was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, next to actually putting my sweating, defenseless foot down on the cold tile of the bathroom floor. If it wanted fresh meat, it would have to come out, almost to the door. I couldn't bring myself to get any closer than three feet from the tub. I felt it before it attacked. Some kind of primal sixth sense kicked in and saved my ass, And I'm not fool enough to claim I wouldn't have screamed if it had bit me again. I smacked that jar open and down on the floor so hard it was a damned miracle it didn't shatter. Then I just knelt there, breathing hard, water dripping off my head like it was 95 in the sun instead of a winter chilly morning in a dark bathroom. "'Vibrations ran through the jar and into my hand, making my skin crawl, "'and dread pulled my lips thin as I slid the paper between the jar and the floor "'and flipped it upright, twisting the lid on without bothering to take away the paper. "'I was too afraid. "'At about the same time as I switched on the light, "'I thought how silly it was for a grown man to be afraid of an insect.' Mandibles clicking, the thing in the jar started slamming against the glass in a futile attempt at escape, and with both relief and revulsion, I saw the egg sac was still connected and throbbing with unborn life. Maybe my fear wasn't so stupid after all. By Monday afternoon, I was afraid lack of oxygen would kill it though I hadn't risked drilling even the tiniest hole in the lid because of the impending babies. With a couple of hours to spare before Maggie got home, I took my time retrieving the jar from its hiding place among the camping gear in the basement. The thing inside seemed paralyzed for about five minutes, then began ramming the glass energetically. I figured it must be like a person who keeps running headlong into a foot-thick concrete wall and stops worrying. If me stomping on it didn't destroy it, "'Neither would a few days of thinned-out air, "'though the cold in the basement had made it sluggish. "'Chances are it would probably die off in cold weather like other insects. "'I turned up something else from the basement, "'a little box that had once held a new lantern glass. "'It was just the right size for the jar, "'with a little extra room for padding. "'Some of those great little air-bubble sheets were still inside. "'I put it all together carefully.' and addressed it using block letters and a backhand slant that didn't resemble my usual scribbling at all, though I didn't really think it would matter. I was much calmer now. Organization, a sense of security and always knowing what to do, things patiently modeled for me by Maggie. Knowing how to take care of business, that was the key. I shook the package gently. Not a sound could make it past all those air bubbles. The clock showed I still had an hour before Maggie got home. I could walk there and back and still have time to shower. Hi, I said happily. How much to mail this first class? The woman behind the window didn't smile back at me when I pushed the box forward, but I didn't care. She dropped it on the scale, and I winced slightly. Dollar fifty? Fine, I said. Let me have it in stamps, please, and a fragile sticker, too. That earned me a dirty look, but I still walked out of the post office with a big shit-ass grin on my face. A warm, wet April breeze blew in the door with us. We'd been out for a Saturday brunch. Nothing fancy, but still a treat considering our budget. Maggie checked the mail, and I walked inside and opened the blinds in the front room. For a second, the sun broke through the cloud cover, and shone in the window to send bright stripes of light bouncing across the carpet. The place I'd once hated finally seemed like home. "'Look at this, Johnny,' Maggie said as she flipped through the envelopes. "'She always called me Johnny when we were getting along really well. "'The alimony check came back unclaimed. "'I wonder what's going on.' "'I just smiled.'
3: Calm down, calm down. I know this is Chicago. This is an apartment. It's an old, old building with dark, creaky stairs, ancient plumbing, going back to the time of the fire. But that skittering you think you hear is nothing like, well, come on. The nook is lovely, dark, and old, and free of critter, more or less. So... You can thank Yvonne Navarro for your tingly neck hairs and the urge to check the floors around you. I met Yvonne just after her first novel, After Age, was published. I was working at a Chicago science fiction fantasy horror bookstore that I've mentioned before, The Stars Are Destination, which, for the books, the customers, the authors who came to visit, I miss to this day. We were hosting a big multi-author signing. It featured Gene Wolfe, uh, Wayne Allen Sally was there, uh, Phyllis Eisenstein, and Yvonne Navarro, whom I had never heard of. Alice Bentley, the owner of Stars, always encouraged staff to consume the product, so we knew what we were offering. And I had just read her afterage. The book is a Chicago-centric vampire apocalypse tale. Now, I am not a vampire fan, yet After Age captured me. Her take on the city was right on, but her take on vampires was truly fresh, fascinating, and frightening in a way that the tired old bloodsucker tropes had stopped being for me years ago. Well, I loved her book. And after that day, I had a bit of a crush on Vaughn as well. I never told her. Well, we were all much younger then. So again, thanks, Vaughn. And again, thank you, Dave Robson, for reading I Know What to Do. Dave did this on a quick turnaround, and Dave's a busy guy. He's from Spring Hill, Tennessee, and has been writing since age eight. By age ten, he was doing improv theater and became a trumpet virtuoso by age twelve. Sometime after that, he picked up a degree in theater and recently started pursuing story narration for podcasts. He's voiced stories for the Drabblecast, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, and soon... Well, hmm, that's a secret. Recently, uh, Dave teamed up with writer-educator Brian Humphreys to create... The Round Table Podcast, a place here in the Interzone, thank you, William S. Burroughs, where writers are invited to workshop story ideas to a panel of pros. Check it out at uh, www.roundtablepodcast.com. It's probably not telling tales out of school, but I'll be sitting in on the Round Table in July on some date to be mutually agreed upon. I think I'm one of the pros. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it, Dave. So, that is the evening. I hope you've enjoyed the stories. Hope you've enjoyed the tour of the abattoir. Hope you've enjoyed snuggling in the nook. And I hope you'll be back next week. So, as you prepare to venture away from the air-conditioned, cool, dark comfort of the nook and go through the orange-sodium-vapor mug of Chicago summer night. I hope you're considering what ten terrifying minutes of your book you'll drop off, what short audition piece you might send so we can know what story to pair you with for reading to the other children of the night here in the nook. You'll know by the time you get home. You'll surely know after you climb into bed, being careful not to walk barefoot across your own floors in the dark. And you'll know everything by the time you close your eyes against the night and begin to wonder in those moments before helpless sleep takes you. You'll know what may have crawled under or into your bed while you were out. And by then, you'll be having some very... Pleasant dreams. Mm. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.